forgot when I was going to start talking, so. Hello, and welcome to a mini-sode of Movies We Dig, the podcast about films, antiquity, and everything in between. I'm Christy Vogler, and today I'm here with a very special guest, Hannah Bazinoff. I realize I should make sure I know how to say it that. Is, it is Bazinoff, yeah. Huzzah! I should have known that beforehand, but here we go. Um, and today we're here to do a quick reaction, a shovel test, if you will, of the first two episodes of Disney's Percy Jackson and the Olympians, a show adapted from Rick Riordan's 2006 book, The Lightning Thief. It's going to go beyond that, I'm sure, uh, down the line, but that's where we're at right now. Hannah is also helping us out behind the scenes, so we are extremely excited to have her join our little cohort. Everyone say hello to Hannah. Hello. Hi. Hi. <laughs> um, so for today, we'll be conducting what, as I mentioned, archaeologists like to call a shovel test of this series by giving a brief overview of each episode, provide some information on the ancient sources from which Rorden was drawing from to tell these stories. And then once the season concludes, you guys are all going to get to hear the whole crew talk about it in our kind of normal style, but we wanted to react in the moment while it was happening, um, which leads us to, of course, Hannah, do you dig it? I very much dig it. I think it's a perfect adaptation because all perfect adaptations change their media in some form or shape. I'm really enjoying it. There's not like any major cons I have. So Hannah's our resident expert on Percy Jackson, grew up reading the books and was annotating the book again to prepare for this, which is perfect because yeah. I missed it. I missed the bandwagon. Um, as I was telling Hannah, I saw the first movie and that's about all of the background knowledge I have on this. I, but I had so many students come into the field like this was their introduction to Greek mythology, ancient Greece, which is great. I love anything that brings people in, um, but I just... D didn't get it. And so I'm I'm learning a lot. Uh, what I can say I absolutely love about this show is we've seen a lot of Greek myth adaptations, especially live action. And it, it looks wonky. It looks weird. Like, and I love the monsters and how they're depicted. Like, I think this is shot so beautifully. It feels realistic for, uh, you know, what is supposed to be unrealistic elements. Um, and that's really cool because for the longest time, I only believed animation could do that. Like, I love animated versions of Greek mythology because it's easier to suspend your disbelief about what's happening. But I think we're finally, our technology is getting good enough that we can do live action, which is cool. I think um, the shot where, like, Percy is looking out the window in the first episode and he sees the rhino and then it turns into the, the garbage bus. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I thought that was, like, perfect. Yeah. That was a beautiful shot. Yeah. Yeah. And so... Um, I will say like that element, I love, you know, anything that makes mythology. And I, I will talk about this later, but it's like, it's actually really important to have these stories be grounded in what appears to be reality. Cause we'll talk about like, what did legends actually mean to the ancient Greeks? What did the stories of Perseus and other heroes actually mean to them? Because it wasn't, it wasn't complete fantasy um, to the ancient Greeks. It was, it was something different. And so it's really cool that we can start to recreate that in our media today. I will say the other thing I absolutely love is the casting so far. Like, Love the casting. It's so good. Like they did excellent work on like finding the chemistry between the actors to really fill the role of these characters. In my experience, it's like I didn't think it was too bad in the first movie or the original movie at all. Like the casting choices seemed pretty good. Although Uma Thurman as Medusa always kind of weirded me out a little bit. But Logan Lerman, right? Percy Jackson, wrong time. Um, mm -hmm. But there was like 
big debate around casting Leah Jeffries because in the books, when it was written in 2006, um, Annabeth was blonde in order to combat like the dumb blonde stereotype. Mm. Um, and people were like, oh, that's so important to a character. You got to keep it. Okay. But like, that's not really a prevalent stereotype anymore. You know what is a prevalent stereotype? That black women are unintelligent. And so I think it's really amazing that they cast Leah Jeffries. Yeah. And that has always been a kind of a constant issue about the ancient world and media is over time, a lot of it was whitewashed because Brits and Americans took over. It's like, we're going to tell the stories about Greece and Rome and we're going to cast white actors for all of these roles when like it was such a more cosmopolitan world back then that like I think the diversity actually is more authentic than how people gripe about the casting of characters now. So like, yeah, I like that they went with who felt right for the part and not the physical appearance. Like, I think I think people need to move past that. Um, also, notably, um, Jason Manzukas, he plays Dionysus. He is a Greek actor. Yes. Weirdly enough, I think at some point in the podcast, like Colin Lige and I, someone called out that he would make a great Greek god. I think specifically Dionysus. And I'm pretty sure it had nothing to do with Percy Jackson. So like whoever made that call out way back when, congratulations, yes. you nailed it. That that was on the bingo He's card. Great. He is exactly yeah, he like fun. he is in the book. Um, like yeah. Peter Johnson is a running joke, but he never remembers any of the kids' names. <laughs> But yeah, he was fun. I, like I said, the casting, the chemistry between the actors is like, those were all things I really enjoyed. This was a pleasant viewing experience. I, I'm excited to see more episodes for sure. At the same time, and this is elements that I want you to unpack for me if they're in the books or not, was some parts that I didn't really love. Okay. The, the first, and we're going to come back to this. So I'm going to play a clip from the audio and make sure I play the right one. Perseus. That's me. Mm -hmm. That's who you're named after. Is that why you named me after him? Because he was a hero? What makes you think he was a hero? Because he kills monsters. What makes you think that she was a monster? Mom. Not everyone who looks like a hero is a hero. And not everyone who looks like a monster is a monster. I named you after him because when he was a very little boy, he and his mother were placed in a wooden chest and cast out into the sea by a very angry king, alone, afraid. And at night, his mother would whisper in his ear, hold fast, Perseus, brave the storm that was made to break us, for we are unbreakable as long as we have each other. And against all odds, he managed to find his way to a happy ending. Okay, so. A little stilted there. It was the best I could do because Disney's very protective about very protective their material. So it set up this really cool relationship between them. And I love that conversation. That opening conversation is like, what makes a hero a hero? What makes a monster a monster? And they don't always seem what they seem like. And it's like, I love that. I love the nuance there. But then like going forward in these two episodes, it feels like we started to lose that nuance because automatically it became... Perseus is slaying the Minotaur. Perseus is fighting people. And I think we'll go into this a bit more, but I, I'm hoping the books are going to go back to the nuance of like, you can't, you can't define heroes a certain way. You can't define monsters a certain way, especially with the opening monster being the Minotaur. The Minotaur was created through the misdeeds of others. Like the Minotaur in a lot of ways is kind of a, yeah, he eats people, but like he was created by others and their misdeeds. It wasn't something that 
was his fault initially. That's that's, re- that's a really good point. Um, what makes a hero is very much a very central point throughout the books. I see it set up already with Luke and Annabeth, like because like mm-hmm. Annabeth so badly wants to be a hero. She yeah. wants to prove herself. And then we have Luke, who is already a failed hero. You can see the scar on his face, which I think mm-hmm. is really interesting because he talks about Cleos and how it attaches itself to your name. Um, yep. But like, how is he going to ever have Cleos when he's wearing his failure on his face? Mm-hmm. Or at least we'll talk about that that term too. That term is important to to consider down the line. But um, yeah, we'll 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 talk about Cleos some more because I think that's an interesting concept tied to this idea of what is what is a hero. Yeah, what is a hero? Huge theme. Um, and when she says that, she's... Well, we can come back to this, I guess. If you, Go for when it. She, when she says it, um, these are, you know, spoilers, but if you haven't read the book, I don't really know what you're doing listening to this. Um, <laughs> They're here to get like, an education, Hannah, like me. So true, so true. Um, at the end of the book, the big reveal is that Luke is the one working for Kronos to facilitate this war between the gods. Kronos is the voice we hear in Percy's dreams. Okay. He's going like, oh, here you are, Percy Jackson, all alone. That's him like reaching out from where he is in Tartarus. Luke looks like a hero to Percy. Luke is who sweeps him in under his wing. He teaches him all these things about camp that he doesn't know. When he sets out on his quest, he's the one who gives him like the winged shoes. Mm-hmm. Like Luke is very much this hero figure, but he is not a true hero. And he is easily who Percy could have been if things mm-hmm. were just a little bit different. So that's kind of like what's so important about Luke. Um, yeah. And actually by the end of the books, they acknowledge that like Luke's point, he wasn't wrong. The gods do need to change. He just mm-hmm. went about it in the wrong way. So it's so a pin in that because we will definitely be coming back to it's like not only should we be answering the question of like, you know, what makes a hero, but like what makes a monster? Because that was something kind of alluded to in this opening scene, uh, especially because, right, it's they're standing in front of the statue of Perseus holding the head of Medusa. Let's take and, a moment to shout out to that one statue of Medusa holding Perseus's head. Yeah, um, I think about that all the time. Yeah. Great statue. Also weirdly problematic in its own way, because even though it really? seems like a feminist message overall, all it really is is patriarchy just with reverse gender happening. Interesting. Oh, if you think about it, right? It's you're solving your problems with violence by holding power over someone else. You just have women doing it instead of men. So it's not really solving the issue of violence. Have you considered women? Yes, all the time. <laughs> Literally, like, takes up my brain space all the flipping time. So, uh, yeah. Oh, man. So, yeah. Pin, Pin and Medusa, we're coming back to her. We're coming back to her hard next week. So, that goes on. I guess still talking about women because we're going to talk about Sally. I love Sally so much. I kind of wish there was an adult version of Percy Jackson. It's like, can we just follow the adventures of Sally? Because I love her so much. The question I have, though, is she is so emotionally intelligent in her relationship with her son, and yet she is portrayed as being in a controlling, if not abusive, relationship with this guy. Um, you have questions. Like, it's, it's, and, it's a, and what I don't like, I understand like who the audience is. It's a sanitized abusive relationship, right? It's a sanitized controlling relationship. They try to make it not look so bad by like, having her layouts like, I'm going to get the sandwiches. And if you don't do what I want, but like, why is she living in that situation when she, like, she has so much emotional intelligence when it comes to her son, but it it seems lacking in herself, which is. I have answers. 
Hit me with those um, answers. I need them. I actually hate, this is like one of the only gripes I have with this show. They have sanitized, like you said, Gabe and Talia's relationship because in the books, he is explicitly abusive. He's mm-hmm. overtly abusive. And that's kind of what's so satisfying. Not to like just Sally does kill him at the end of the book with book dead yes. Medusa. I love it. So there is like an in-world explanation. Humans have a stench the same mm-hmm. way that demigods have a stench. And mm-hmm. so the reasoning is that she is with Gabe because Gabe is so loud and literally <laughs> stinks so bad that it covers up Percy's demigod scent to monsters. They, they made Sally a lot more in control of herself, mm-hmm. I think, and have a much more proactive role in Percy and protecting Percy yeah. in the show. But just like, it was much worse in the books. And honestly, I don't like just the, oh, he's just kind of a loser um, depiction of Gabe because, yeah. I don't know, I think it takes away from the complexity of it. It really does because it's like the only, it's like, I couldn't even say for sure the relationship was necessarily abusive. The closest I could actually says it was controlling because of like him like picking up her phone right and things like that it's like well that's a controlling relationship which is a sign of abuse but yeah like in the books to go to montauk he she has to like beg him and make him like this very complex bean burrito dip for his poker night with his buddies like he threatens percy before they leave and he's like not a scratch on my camaro even though you know percy's 12 he's not driving and I, I wish they would have kept that because it doesn't necessarily have to detract from Sally's character because, I mean, that is common in many abusive relationships, especially ones that involve children, is like the woman or the individual stays because of a sense of like this offers more protection than if I was out on my own, even though it doesn't seem like it. And that might not necessarily be true, but that is often the perception, that right? Is, like, yeah. That is exactly so, why she stays with him, for this sense of safety for Percy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's, when like it's, this, there's this heartbreaking moment in the book where, like, Percy is looking at Gabe, and he realizes that he hits his mother. And it's like, you guys, like, I've never seen him do it, but when I'm gone, I know he hits her. Yeah. And I don't know, that really struck me as a kid. Um, yeah. Like, it's, I mean, the Disney's always going to do that, right? They're going to sanitize a lot of these darker elements to appeal to a broader audience, And I think that's the question I've always had about this series in terms of like, you know, how much do I want to critique a series written for a middle school level that is getting people interested in my field, but it's maybe perpetuating certain ideas that are not good once you delve into them deeper. And that's more on like the Western Civ side of things. But like in this case, it's present here too in terms of like, what does an abusive relationship look like and how do we react to that? Hot take. Um, mm-hmm. I think even if it is like children's media, I think children's media deserves the exact same amount of scrutiny as adult media does. Because even oh, yeah. more so maybe because it is it is at children who are still developing and this can impact their ideals and their beliefs. Um, and they don't even understand. And they why. don't even understand. Um, yeah. So I think it's 100% valid to criticize it. And then I the other part that was like bothering me so much was like besides Sally – Everyone around him is gaslighting poor Percy, especially Grover with that situation of, I forget her name, being pushed into the fountain. And I'm like, traumatized this kid so much. And I I think the mechanic, or, you know, the reason to do so was to like get him kicked out of school in order to go to Camp Half-Blood. But no, it's more like the idea that like the more, the reason Percy has like that speech in the beginning is like, I don't want to be a half-blood. If you think you're a half-blood, turn back now. Don't listen mm-hmm. because once you know, they'll know. 
that's what's happening. They're trying okay. to keep Percy from knowing because once he does, it it's ah. like a beacon. Um, okay. I, Chiron and um, Grover. Dionysus, very- right? Maybe not Di- Grover. There Grover, yeah. They're very much gaslight gatekeep girl boss. Actually, I do kind of have beef with how they didn't pick Grover because in the books, Grover's form of protecting Percy is always being on his side, always being by his side. Yeah. Um, so like the fact that he was gets him kicked out was like, Grover's a snitch. Yeah. And it, it made me sour from episode two on the characters Chiron and Dionysus even further because Grover, you know, he he feels bad about the situation and he wants to like fix it. And so he's trying to learn about what might have happened to Sally, right? Because she didn't, as he pointed out, it's like she didn't like do a squishy thing when the Minotaur got her. She just kind of disintegrated like monsters. Love um, that writing. Yeah. So it's so it's like, okay, so he's being like, I, you know, I have lied to Percy for so long, right? I want to mm-hmm. be upfront with him. And Chiron and Dionysus are like, no, you you have to keep this from him. And I'm I'm it's like, I don't understand why until that final scene happens where like, Percy, you have to go on this quest to fix this problem and go to the underworld. And Grover shows up because Percy is like, no, no, or Percy. Sorry, I'm going to say Percy. It's a lot. Percy's like, no, I don't. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to do anything for a Fuck guy you. who has had <laughs> nothing to do with my life this entire time. A message and then, I support. Yeah. And then Grover comes in and be like, I'm going to be honest now and tell him that hey, she's in the underworld. And guess what? That's the same thing they want. So you might as well go. And that felt so manipulated from Chiron and Dionysus. Like, I can't tell if like they didn't work it out that way that, you know, they're killing two birds with one stone. I don't think they stone. wanted him to know because they seemed genuinely upset when Grover told them. They were like, Grover, don't. Yeah, but um, think about it because it, it achieves two things, right? Now Percy, Percy will go to the underworld and Grover is now back in Percy's good graces because he has now proven that, like, people still wanted to lie to you, and I told you the truth Ooh. after lying to him for so long. That's why I didn't like it. It was so, so manipulative. That, that was a good one. Um, this That's definitely not present in the books. I wouldn't put it past Mr. D to do that. Chiron, however, is very much like a very paternal figure mm-hmm. who keeps secrets sometimes, but it very obviously pains him to do so. Yeah. This was kind of an unnecessary secret to keep. Yeah. Yeah. Other than, like I said, other than to get like Grover back in Percy's good graces, there was no reason to keep that information from Percy. They also didn't intend for Grover to know, though, I think, because Grover has to go to like the Council of the Cloven Elders, which we right. don't see in the which we don't really see in the books. Um and we I wish we would have seen actually in the show, mm-hmm. like at least a little bit of it. We saw a nymph, right? Like I thought that was yeah, cool. a tree nymph, a, um, a dryad, yeah. Dryad, there we go. Yep. So yeah, those those were the things that I did not love about these first two episodes. And so it's it's kind of nice to see this. Like that was a Disney choice and it wasn't necessarily a book choice in a lot of ways, which, you know, that's what I've been waiting for is to see what Disney does to be Disney because Disney- That's true. Does some, not like uh, in a lot of their movies, they do things I don't like. So I'm glad- you're here to explain the difference between the two because I think that's really important. This is my idea of fun, so I'm I'm happy to be here. <laughs> well, good because now I have questions. Um, so I think uh, this was always the one I had about the movie. Is like, okay, I know the story about Percy is pretty well, and then it's like I thought I remembered this from the films because I keep like waiting. It's like, oh, Perseus is the son of Zeus, and he has to go find his dad's lightning bolt. Right? No, his dad is Poseidon. And I'm like. Why? It doesn't necessarily really matter because neither of them were really involved in his story whatsoever, other than 
knocking up poor mom. So I guess it doesn't matter, but it's like, why was that choice made? Or do you have a sense of why he went with that? I think we know this story originated as something he told his kid. Mm -hmm. Um, So I can definitely see it just being like his kid's personal preference. And by then it was so embaked into the character of Percy that he didn't want to change it. It could also just be our modern perception as of Zeus as like king of the jerks. Um, Stepping out on Hera, doing some mischief. But now it's on Poseidon, which she's not necessarily much better. So yeah, that is on Poseidon as well. But we don't necessarily like as a society have as much of a negative view of him. Mm -hmm. Whenever, Mm -hmm. whenever some like whenever people who like Greek mythology talk about Zeus, they're like, oh, Zeus again. Mm -hmm. Um, That's true. But we don't have that same kind of like attitude towards Poseidon. Yeah. Also, water power is cool. It is. Also, okay. So my other favorite scene was um, when Percy comes home and his sally is sitting in the rain listening to olivia rodrigo logical <laughs> and i was like i looked up the lyrics and i'm like my god it it is perfect for her character because here, here's the opening lines master manipulator god you're so good at what you do come for me like a savior and i put myself through hell for you hear all the rumors lately that you always denied and i fell for you like water falls from the february sky but now the current's stronger no, I couldn't get out if I tried. But you convinced me, baby. It was all in my mind. And I'm like, go stream guts right now. I love her. <sighs> so good. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, first of all, great choice of song. And then I looked at the lyrics again. I'm like, excellent choice of song considering the character. <laughs> so and then, like she's um, sitting in the rain thinking yeah. about him. Yeah. And I, I, I think re- I saw an interview with Rick Rorden talking about how like they're going to um, – expand upon their relationship a bit more down the line i think or like we're gonna get a little bit more than that than i think what was necessarily present in the books but who knows calling poseidon noble i'm like in the sense of regal maybe but ah okay anyway um okay so that was my first question question two is the pact between the big three zeus poseidon and hades with this idea that they would um, they made this pact of like, we're not going to sire any more children because we're they're too powerful. And then proceed to just not follow the pact whatsoever. And we end up with the category of forbidden children. Why would they care if their children were too powerful? I don't understand. Like, that seems to be exactly their kind of jam. Um, oh, Zeus would love for his kid to be powerful, but that gets Hades. And like, that's supposed to get like Hades and Poseidon pissed. They're like, okay. oh, why do you get to have a powerful son and I don't? And then, like, it's supposed to be, like, an inherent power struggle where they each keep trying to one-up each other. Um, And then, so glad they left this out of the show. I was hoping they would. But um, they highlight specific historical figures as, like, children of the gods. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of them is they say that World War II was fought between children of the big three. Um, Which which implies that they fathered Nazis. Uh, So, I'm glad they left that out. Um, Also. Fun fact, um, like when they're in the disciplinary scene and you can see like that painting of George Washington um, in the mm-hmm. background, George Washington is one of those historical figures. He's supposed to be a son of Athena. And, and like the odd thing is, is like it would make more sense that they made the pact because Zeus is constantly afraid that one of his children is going to overpower and overthrow him. He's constantly yeah. afraid yeah. of that. That like, would have been so much better. Makes sense, right? It's like that's in keeping with the logic. And then my other thought sitting back here and looking at um, – uh camp half-blood is just like man the gods get around a lot for like the same a general age of kids to be doing like massive 
capture the flag events and three of the gods supposedly aren't procreating that's a lot uh happening right there which three? Oh, oh, those three. Uh, because yeah. we, d we don't even touch on how Artemis has the Hunters of Artemis. Her cabin is symbolic. Um, okay. We do have Athena making brain babies, which I always like. I know she's like, I don't know. She's yeah. Eric I kind of like it, actually. I'm not even going to lie. I like nah. the brain babies. Um, I I'm going to have to have that explained down the line, but I feel like we should save conversations with Athena with the next one with Medusa. And when we get to do a little bit more with Annabeth, too, I think. I love Annabeth. She's yeah, so good. I, I do, too. I really like her. The thought of Athena having a bunch of children is also just kind of like, hmm. It makes you feel any better. None of them are good parents. <laughs> um, but that's cabins. in keeping. That's yeah. tradition. Biggest cabins are the Apollo cabin and the Hermes cabin, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. Aphrodite is actually pretty big, too. Aphrodite would make sense. Ares would also make sense because he's hooking up with Aphrodite. So, like. But wouldn't they make god kids? Um, well, in this context, yes, they would make god kids. Yeah, technically. Yes. Yeah, pretty much. But they're not like powerful gods. So eh, whatever. It would make sense overall. Um, yeah. So, okay. So I've got that. And then the last one was this mechanic explained with the introduction of Dionysus, which I thought was interesting, was the idea that demigods can do things that gods are forbidden from doing for themselves. And I mm -hmm. thought that was a really interesting mechanic that Rick Rorden, I'm assuming he introduced that or. He did. He did. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. Can you explain that a little bit more? Yes, that is actually why, okay, the Fieri Electo, um, Mrs. Dodds, who is watching Percy, um, mm -hmm. she's there because, fun fact, we're recording this on the solstice. It is on the solstice in the books that year-rounders, a Camp Half-Blood, took a like field trip to Olympus. And mm -hmm. while there, that's when the bolt was stolen. And so okay. that's why it's given the deadline until the summer solstice. Gotcha. Um, okay. That's the idea that like they can't directly sabotage each other. Mm -hmm. So they had... The idea is that they had is that Poseidon had Percy steal the bolt in order to like okay. weaken Zeus's hold. Okay. Um, obviously he didn't, but yeah, that's the idea. Um, and okay. I think that's pretty like maybe that doesn't have any like direct historical parallels, but like you do see it like when they're like messing around with, like the Trojan War and stuff like that. Yeah, you know? that was the parallel I saw was this idea that Zeus is the king of the gods, right? But like he ultimately has to answer to fate. But what's really interesting in the way it's talked about in the Iliad is like Zeus suggests that he can change fate. He could interfere and prevent the death of one of his own sons that are fighting fighting on the battlefield. And what actually stops him is not his ability to do it, but it's the fact that Hera steps up and says, you say we can't do that. If you do this, we will band together and we will overthrow you. So it's kind of like collective action is stopping Zeus from doing whatever he wants, which is kind of an interesting element. There's technically the gods really could do anything they want, um, but they are beholden to each other. And as I mentioned before, like Zeus is constantly afraid of being overthrown um, because he comes from a long tradition of that, of the son overthrowing the father and taking his place. So it, this is an interesting mechanic to introduce. I, I don't I don't find it problematic. I think it works well for the storyline. Um, but yeah, as you mentioned, it doesn't really have a one-to-one -one equivalent in ancient myth um, as uh, far as I'm aware of. Mm -hmm. So they're not like directly playing against each other, but they have like, they have these little pawns that can move around and they're people, mm -hmm. they're children. Um, yeah. So that's also like, my favorite part of the books is that the books end with Percy being like, okay, yeah, I saved Olympus for you. Now, in return, like, I don't want godhood. I want you to take accountability for your children. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so like it ends with like they must all be claimed by the age of thirteen. Okay. Um, the idea- I like that. Yeah, yeah, I like that. I like that as a message because it's not about like you know that. Well, we're, then this is the problem I'm going to have with the current depiction of heroes so far. But like this idea of in order to combat power, you ha- power you have to become powerful yourself, and then you end up perpetuating that system. But instead, um, the other choice is to again collectively work together and demand accountability from those who are in power. Um, yeah. And so that's what I think is so beautiful. Percy is like, Percy is offered the chance to become a god himself and he mm-hmm. turns it down. And apparently they, I think there's like a big deal made because no one has ever turned down godhood. And <laughs> that is so Disney though. That is Disney's Hercules. Um, yeah, he turns down godhood and instead he's like, Luke was right. Y'all, mm-hmm. were, y'all are bitches. Take responsibility for your children. Pay your child support. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is another one of the problems that like at the end of the series, the, like, another one of the problems that like Luke fosters hatred towards the gods for it is because that they have these children just to use them as pawns yeah and i think that's a really good message so i'm i'm hoping that's going to come out more um okay so do you have any further thoughts on just like what we've talked about so far did you have questions about like ancient i could i could talk about the ancient myths but um in our notes about cleos and like you like have a point that's like mm -hmm. um Children of Ares don't necessarily seek glory because Clarice says glory is fine, revenge is more fun. Um, yeah. They do. Clarice is another example of not everyone who looks like a monster is a monster because, like, from her behavior, you know, it's like, oh, she's a bully. She's terrible. And she's definitely not doing great. I like but- that she, she they, they pull it back a little bit because she's like, I, it's like, yeah, I don't actually want to maim or kill you. I want you to declare yourself a fraud. Clarice does want glory, but she already has it. Um, mm-hmm. Like, the reason she gives that scream when Percy, like, breaks her spear, which, uh, DR Goodjohn, her rent was due. Water Mm -hmm. was off. Lights were out. (laughs) She killed that. Um, She killed that scream. Um, It's because it was a gift from Ares. He's acknowledged her, and that's a big deal. It's a big deal to be acknowledged, even given a gift. Um, Mm -hmm. So she has her Cleos, but she views Percy as a threat to that because, what, he, his first day, he kills a minotaur? Mm-hmm. So that's why she hates him so much. That's why she's like, you are threatening my place as one mm-hmm. of like the top dogs of camp. Yeah. Yeah. Which is okay. Good. Okay. That's awesome because that helps me understand a little bit more about Rorden's understanding of Cleos as it plays out with his characters. And um, now it's my turn. Now I get to be the expert a little bit and talk about like, you know, where is some of this inspiration coming from? And I think one of, I, I have three main ca- concepts I want us to keep in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, Perseus, Perseus uh, Perse- um, the inspiration for Perseus is Perseus. And Perseus as a hero and his stories, um, there's different types of myths. One's just about gods are like etiological stories meant to explain um, natural phenomena. So we get the story of like Persephone traveling to the underworld to help explain seasons as an example. Yeah, um, I, I know I know this part vaguely. Yeah. So so that those are stories about just the gods. But what we're actually dealing with is a particular category called legends. Um, the Trojan War in the Iliad is probably one that most people are familiar with, but any kind of hero story, Theseus, Perseus, Heracles, any of them falls on this character of legend where gods are present in the story and they might um they might influence um some of the events but the main driver is the hero 
And what's really cool is that a hero is, can be a man or a woman. Um, in fact, like in ancient Greek society, hero worship is a literal thing where like you like someone, there's a cult to um, Helen, for instance, Helen of Troy, better known as Helen of Sparta. She My girl did nothing wrong. Yeah, she is considered a hero and she was worshiped. And what that means is that for the ancient Greeks, legends and these stories around these heroes were about real people and real events that took place. As far as the ancient Greeks were concerned, the Trojan War really happened and they were descended from the heroes of the Trojan War. And these other stories are meant to explain their ancestry and their heritage and why they are where they are in the world. And that's really important to think about with Perseus. Perseus is mentioned in some of our earliest sources, including Homer's Iliad. Um, and he's mentioned in uh, Hesiod, who is a contemporary to Homer in the Theogony. Um, and that dates to 750 BCE or BC. But what's interesting about Homer and Hesiod is like they come from a longer tradition of oral history, right? So mm -hmm. these stories about these people and these events that took place go back as far back as the Bronze Age collapse of the 1200s BCE. And like I said, it's like it's grounded in reality. As far as the ancient Greeks were concerned, what we think of ancient Greeks, we think of like fifth century a lot of the times with the Parthenon and all of that. Mm -hmm. These are real people. They have real tombs you can go and visit. Alexander the Great, one of his main stops on his whole conquest was to go and sacrifice at the tomb of Achilles. Ooh, that's yeah. cool. Yeah, it was a real place. It was a real guy. He had such an important thing. And what's really interesting is that most of the stories we have about Perseus, for example, like I said, some of the earliest ones are coming from Homer and Hesiod, but the ones coming after that are not what we would consider playwrights or you know, myth makers, they were historians and geographers explaining how Perseus's actions in his lifetime led to the results of like the city being here or this particular royal line controlling the city. So a lot of the early stories about Perseus are grounded in what they believe to be historical truth. It's only like when you get to later Romans um, that they the Romans start to turn it on its head and think it's like, oh, no, it's more of a myth. We've got to like get these stories um, coming out. And that, you know, that doesn't happen until like the first, second century AD, which is, gosh, like 900 year difference uh, between when Perseus is first written about. So the important thing is like legends in terms of the heroes, true stories which is really important to think about and why I like the realism of the show. And then the other thing with that is like heroes, what that means is very different in a modern context. Uh, what that meant back then is like nobility. You were an aristocrat who had power and leadership. That's all it meant to be a hero. You were born lucky is kind of what, what it is. Yeah. And I could, I could imagine our billionaires being demigods. That would be terrible. Exactly. That that's exactly like the equivalent I was thinking of was genius, where like, you know, use sense, the word yeah. genius, like Albert Einstein, like there's certain names you can drop being tied to intelligence, supposedly like Elon Musk. And, you know, yeah, it's like a lot of those individuals were very intelligent or important just because they had all these resources to kind of uphold themselves in a society and they get this title. Um, yeah, you you get to be this genius because you've never had to work at like at doing anything else at the same time. Yeah. Mr. Yeah. My dad has, my parents owned an emerald mine. 
exactly right and if he has no haters i'm dead when you have the resources to take care of like your daily needs and you can expend all of your energy on other endeavors yeah it's really easy to look powerful or to become powerful to be appear like a genius or heroic or whatever so that's kind of uh, one thing i want us to keep in mind going forward when we're trying to answer this question in rick rorden's world of like what is a hero well what it wasn't back then it was just like Usually it did mean you were a son of a god, but that just kind of like upped how shiny you were. You were, you know, Paris, um, who is he? Paris was the son of some god. Man, I'm blanking. Um, but his- He was? Is he no, the Hector? No, you're right. No, he was just nobility, but his nobility was so apparent that even when he was a shepherd, because he'd been exposed as an infant, that everyone saw him was like, oh, he's so great. Paris is not great, guys. But anyway, everyone around him at the Paris time believed the he was great simply because he was a noble. And therefore, there's like, I don't know, you're holographic or something. I don't know. So and that so all of that brings me back to kind of this point that um, you had brought up of what Cleos is. And I think Luke actually gives a pretty good explanation. So Luke describes it as being the equivalent to glory stuff that attaches itself to your name and it makes it bigger, scarier, and more important. Um, and he mentions that it's gained through feats of skill. And in the show, they, they show it as archery and blacksmithing, which I, I thought was cool. They were trying to like, they let only did say, two skills. <laughs> but, yeah, I was hoping for a longer montage. But let me yeah. say, as an archer, that is not how you conduct an archery range. <laughs> you got to yell clear. People need to be behind a line. Why are you lighting it on fire? <laughs> I, I, I appreciated I, that moment. It's like, I wouldn't. It was really funny, but as an archer, I was like, what are they doing here? And, and this kind of goes, I think this is the interesting point of when Clarice says the line, glory is fine, revenge is more fun. And that's because Luke's description is missing something. It's accurate, but it's missing the important aspect that Cleos is actually both, it's a medium and a message in that, I'm trying to, Cleos is, the, is glory that's achieved by Homeric heroes. And the way you actually achieve Cleos is to die violent, dramatic deaths on the field of battle. Ooh. So like it's it's still achieved through feats, but you kind of have to die. And that, you know, the character of Achilles is presented with this, right? Um, yeah, it's Iliad. like he can live a, he can live a normal mortal life or he can die young with Cleos. Exactly. So the way you actually achieve Cleos is dying dramatically, um, which is something kind of hinted at by um, Percy at the beginning of, of the of the whole show. And so that's why Clarice's line, to me, actually kind of makes sense as a child of Ares, because she's like, yeah, glory is one thing. But if you seek revenge, it's not necessarily glory, but it's more fun and you get to live to enjoy it. And that's that's also interesting. why Ares... Yeah, that's why, and that's why Athena and Ares, they're both war gods in this pantheon, right? But Athena always represents the better. She represents the Cleos, the you willing to be on the front lines and sacrifice yourself in the name of glory. And Ares is all the worst aspects of warfare, which is the, the bloodthirst, right? The chance for vengeance and things like that. You're not seeking the glory. You're just there to make a mess of things. But so, so that is the heroic Cleos. The other Cleos is like, what I love is the poets on the side, like Homer, just sitting here, I'm like, and I get Cleos by telling you about these guys and how they died gloriously, because that is also Cleos. I am helping keep their name and glory alive by telling their story, which is mm -hmm. kind of interesting. And it brought me back to that whole, the pen as a sword thing, like those being 
two aspects. So clever. Of Cleo's, I love it. right? It's mm-hmm. it's what you do in a physical capacity of usually fighting other people. But it's also this ability to create and commemorate through writing. Like, it, it seems like a two-choice sort of thing to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess I'll say this first. To me, it really does seem that, like, Sally's the one who actually gets the most Cleos in these first two episodes because she sacrifices herself to save her son. And I think that's why Percy is so, you know, that's why he won't he won't just give in to Clarice and say he's a fraud, right? He killed the Minotaur because of what his mom sacrificed. Mm-hmm. So, like, um, he, he won't just give in that way. I find it very meaningful that, like, um, I don't see this so much in the books, but in the musical, good musical, I love it. Um, good Kid makes me cry every time I listen to it because it's about being a good, trying to be a good kid but always failing because of, like, like ADHD and other problems and adults don't believe in you. I cry when I listen to it. Mm-hmm. Um, Rick was also very, Rick was also like very involved in the making of the musical. And there's like this part where they're singing about like who their parents are. And they've been singing about their godly parent. And Percy chooses to sing about Sally instead. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the show, we see him like he's sacrificing the blue candy that Sally brought him to try and talk to her. It's like, who's your parent? And he goes, Sally Jackson. I love that. I love yeah. that vision. Yeah, that was a great moment. I really enjoyed that too we talked way much longer than I thought I knew you and me were going to chat so much like that's just what I've learned over the last few meetings with each other um so we are also on a trial version of this um platform that we're on so we're gonna start wrapping up with some concluding thoughts but we got plenty of time for that and um I was just gonna say like what I'm really hopeful for for the series going forward is this return to the kind of nuanced speech that Sally gave at the beginning of like, what is a hero? What is a monster? Like, that's what I'm really hopeful at seeing, but I'm kind of concerned that that won't end up being the case. It might be for the hero side of things based on what you've told me today, but I'm feeling like the monsters are going to get kind of the short end of the stick here. I and I, I know what they're doing at the beginning with this speech and I, I think we have enough time to play it. So I'll play it really quick. Um, here we go. I didn't want to be a half blood. Being a half-blood is dangerous. It's scary. Most of the time, it gets you killed in painful, nasty ways. If you think you might be one of us, my advice is turn away while you still can. Because once you know what you are, they'll sense it too. And they'll come for you. Don't say I didn't warn you. So I I know like theatrically what they are doing with that. But again, that's always one of the concerns I have with an audience, like having a younger audience. Like that is your opening message. And, you know, when does it pay off? And like, is it too late in its payoff eventually? So fair. That's fair. Well, special thanks to Hannah for explaining the Percy Jackson world to myself and all those coming to it for the first time. Uh, She'll continue to play the role of Psychopompus for us in the upcoming minisodes. As for you listeners, you can find us on most major streaming platforms as well as moviesbedig.com. Please like, review, and subscribe. Subscribe if you like what you hear. Um, you can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Blue Sky under some variation of the handle at Movies We Dig. We'll catch you here next week when we delve into episode three of Percy Jackson and the Olympians. Bye, all. Bye. Bye.